Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. And if you just read you, this is a test transmission. It opens a new and, I think, exciting chapter in the story of radio. This is going to be a service to provide a tremendous amount of information and satisfy a lot of different interests. I was always itching to shake it during a program. In the air, on the river and underground. We hope very much that uh, Derek can hear us. Can you hear us? From Resonance 104.4 FM and social broadcasts, this is Transmitter, bringing you original sounds, new voices and archive treasures from radio broadcasts, podcasts and sound art across the globe. I'm Lucia Scadzocchio and I'll be scanning the digital soundscape to cut through the noise. The next hour continues our series of conversations about the art of conversation with Joy Kahambu, who is working as the coordinator for a pilot project called Compassionate Neighbours, run by St. Joseph's Hospice in Hackney. When we recorded this conversation in December last year, Joy was no longer working at St. Joseph's, but she has now joined another Compassionate Neighbours team at St. Clair's Hospice in Essex. You'll also hear some candid conversations I recorded in 2017 between different compassionate neighbours during one of their socials. One day I saw Joy down at Dalston Library mm-hmm. and she said, what about coming to be a compassionate neighbour? Okay. And I said, Joy, that's natural to me. I don't need to become a compassionate neighbour. I do it naturally. Okay. So then she said, come to a coffee morning. I came to the coffee morning. I saw how the coffee morning operates. And from there, there was courses going. I jumped on the courses. So, so what year was that you started? Late 2016, coming into 2017. Anthony. Mm. How did you become to hear about Compassionate Neighbour? Oh, I went to the VC Hackney down Springfield House, that's down Dawson, and uh, they recommend me to St. Joseph to do volunteering because at the time I never got out of my house. I was in a lot of problems. My parents were just passing away, my girl was passing away, I couldn't cope. So, from then, I start doing the course with you, Bam, and others. And uh, from then, I've been very happy because I got used up around me, and used up helped me good, especially you, Bam. <laughs> but anyway. This is the kind of continuation of my series of conversations about conversation. The reason I wanted to talk to you, Joy, is because we met a number of years ago when I was hosting some TEDx events at Dalston Library. I invited you to come and talk to us about the project that you were running at that time called Compassionate Neighbours. So the topic was around our relationship with death. 
I just remember you presenting to the group and answering their questions and it was just a really almost super energized moment talking about death which was quite surprising but I think you find that that happens quite a lot so I'd love for you to take us back to that moment of what you were doing then and how you kind of ended up in in that world (laughs) okay so how I ended up there was kind of a bit weird I had been working for the NHS for quite some time and then in public health and then basically public health got put into local authority sort of responsibility so we went from NHS to local authority and there were quite a lot of issues around that and the result with that was that a number of us we had to fight for it but we took redundancy and then that gave me enough money to have like a year of figuring out what I want to do next. So I did lots of courses on all sorts of things, including plumbing and carpentry, etc. And then I, I went to Kenya and I did some volunteering with my sister. And I spent a few months there. And then when I came back, I was in a kind of like, oh, well, now what? And I happened to be in the waiting room at my GP just for something very basic there was a postcard for compassionate neighbors and it was basically a volunteering project you know would you like to do this are you the kind of person that could do that and i thought well you know i've got nothing else to do right now it's just at st joseph's hospice i've kind of avoided that area because of the catholic element i was raised in a convent and i'm i've always questioned stuff and i've never had satisfactory answers so i'm quite skeptical about catholicism so i've always kind of avoided that area but when i went in for the um it was a kind of like a taster day where you did some of the exercises and some of the people who were facilitating were actually compassionate neighbors who had been trained in the previous cohort. And it was quite amazing to meet such a wide variety of people, a lot of them older people, you know, people I would say in my age bracket, 50s plus, but really energetic, really empowered and really actually wanting to make a difference in their community. So I thought, okay, I'll, you know, certainly some training, see what comes out of it. And it was really, really, really fulfilling. I was able to kind of ignore the Catholic element of everything that goes on. I mean, I willfully ignored it and just tried to see the humanity in the project and in the people I was encountering. So after a few months of doing that, they were expanding the project and they they had another role for coordinator. So I applied and I was lucky enough to get it. So that's how I got into it. And it seemed to just fit where I was in my life. And also the fact that, you know, I really enjoy living in Hackney. I feel very much like, even though I I see myself as a Kenyan, because that's where I'm from, but I see myself very much as in terms of being a Londoner, being a Hackneyite. And it's where most of my formative adult life has been. So it was a really interesting way of getting to know another side of the community here. That role was to basically coordinate matching volunteers with very, very isolated people who are, you know, what was described as at end of life. That can cover quite a lot of things. So it's basically people who, for whatever reasons, are limited by their health and unable to have a, you know, are isolated big time, but also where people's lives become more sort of closed in and really around their issue, whatever their issue is. So it was a way of introducing people who were also lonely. So the people who were volunteers were people who were in a similar position to me, like, you know, now what? Now what do I do? And some of those people were actually very lonely people as well. You know, what was really satisfying about that job was actually getting to know people, but really in depth, because we, you know, when we meet somebody who's been referred to the project as an isolated person, we, we go and have big old chat with them and find out lots about them 
because the matching is quite important. It's not just, oh, there's going to be somebody coming to sit with you for an hour at two o'clock. It's somebody who you've got something in common with, who wants to be with you, who's actively looking to be with somebody like you. So it was really satisfying. It was really, really gratifying from that perspective in a way I, I hadn't really anticipated, I have to say. Growing up for me was very strict because there was four of us. I'm the eldest. Mm -hmm. So everything got more laid on me as the eldest in the family. I had most all the responsibility for my brothers and sisters. Yeah, I understand that. Um, I had to look after my brothers and sisters. My brothers and sisters and then went to school, done mm. everything, done this, done mm. that. All responsible was left on me. Mm. House chore, this done, that done, this done. It was a lot. Mm. So growing up was, in my eyes, was very, very strict. You couldn't give your mother a look. That's right. Because... You had to find the optician next year. That's right. <laughs> you couldn't say you suck your teeth because you'll have to find the dentist. <laughs> you understand? We had to have respect. That's it. Our elders. Yeah. You know, so I grew up very, very strict. Very strict. Very strict. And I think because of how I grow, and I always say there's certain things that, I saw my parents do, I always say, when I grow up, I will not instill it on my children. I will be doing it differently, which I have anyway. So you understand, I would just be me, bring them up the right way, make them do things and things like that. We sit down as a family, we speak out things, we talk about it. It's, you know, you don't just push it on one child. When you put a lot of stuff on an eldest child, when they grow up, it is very, very, very hard for them. And when I say very hard for them, is that um, when they go out, all this responsibility, they think that they need to handle it. No, they don't need to handle it because there's other fields that could handle it. That's not you all the time. Because I mean to say, my uncle could become ill. I looked after him because he was in the hospital because he had a trachea. That's the cancer of the throat, so he had a voice box. And at that time, he couldn't have the voice box anymore because of infection. Then um, before that, my dad died. I looked after my dad. My dad died of leukemia. That's cancer of the blood. So I know what's going down the field. So then I came and I had cancer, cancer of the breast. So I understood illness. When my dad died, I was 28 years old. I was young. I was young. So during my youngness, in my teens, I knew what illness was about. So anybody that was ill around me, as friend, as cousin, as this, I just took up on my role. Someone needs to be there for them and someone needs to know what's going on. Someone needs to ask questions, and I'm a person. If I come in the hospital, I'm asking questions. Mm. Don't throb me off, don't tell me this, or don't use big high fallophian doctor's um, medication mm. name because I break it down for you, you know? I've done my bit, and I just look at it. By coming to St. Joseph, I watched my church mum died here. I watched a friend that died here. I watched another friend died here. I watched a close friend with that way like that died here. When I come on the ward, I take over because I understand being ill, what it's like. And especially if you don't have nobody, 
that's another hard hit. Let's say like me, man. Yeah. Because I see my, my father pass, he was sleeping on the bed, and he took his last breath and that was it. Yeah. I saw my mum, my just after he gone, just, oh. and then I saw our best friend, because she's a girl, she just went like, just saw yesterday, she went, just went like that. Mm. And my girlfriend, I took her to the hospital, she had an asthma attack. I couldn't believe what the parents done. They just switch off the machine. You got, that, to, you got to realize when it comes to a machine, it is not her that is breathing. It's the machine that's breathing. Yes, yeah. I know, but I was talking to her and tears was coming from my eyes. I had to fight against about tw 25 people. She was alone. No. She was, because when, 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 when they're ready to turn up, before they're ready to turn the machine, the hound went like that. So life was coming back. Reflex, darling. Yeah, but life was coming back. Reflex, babes. But, um, so you're saying if they did not turn off the machine, she, she would have be been still alive. Trust me. Because I believe in God, you understand? I believe in God, but you got to remember another thing. It's when you've been around people that's been on a life support machine. How about Pam, what's her name? Look, this is the point now. If a person, another family, mm. could keep another family for nearly a month, three months, she had two days, much less one day, and they kept that machine on for, for a month, I'll be happy or a couple of weeks. But they didn't. The doctor would have said how far brain damage Look, she would with, be. Everybody's past They're not God. You understand? I hate you. They had a lot of opportunity to just leave it off for a nice, a few weeks. She's paid her tax. We all know that. You know what I mean? So she, they should have left it off for, you know what I mean? Not, mm -hmm. not today and then next minute they decided to switch it off. It doesn't make sense. Sometimes you have to let these things pass mm. because if you hold on to it, it brings your mind down. Mm. It brings you down. So you sometimes you have to, you say, you see this? Mm. This happened at this year, yeah? Let me move on. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. And this is the reason why I came here, to do what I have to do. To release to take, my mind, to forget about it. To take your mind off it. Yeah, because I was in my house and I was just sitting there, thinking about my mom and dad, everybody. So was basically, you was there just meditating on everybody that's gone. Yeah, and I was going funny, man. My head, was, I was taking make medications. Yeah. So, well, I'm happy that you could come out and you know offload. Yeah, off, off good road. to come out to offload, meet different people, mm. get a different of what, understanding. Yeah. You come out and in the community to mingle. Could, I could talk to properly. Yeah, Did yeah, you see yeah. A friend, it's like, mm. yeah, 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 yeah. The this past judgment, yeah. So the cloud is open. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Bigger cloud now. You're yeah. seeing beyond the clouds. So every time I come here, I feel better because I see. Yeah, because you've gone beyond the cloud yeah. now. Before but the up there, before the cloud was just like yeah. stamped, like yeah, so in front open. of you. So now the cloud has shifted. Mm. Yeah, and opening. And yeah. just open, yeah, so you just it. come through. You've touched on what the project was about, so it's matching people within the community. So the, the people who, who arrived wanting to become 
a compassionate neighbor um mm-hmm. often people who were quite lonely or isolated themselves how quickly or easily did they adapt to this kind of compassionate role because there's quite a lot of training isn't there well yes the training is quite in depth but a very big part of it i think in the training is from the facilitation and the managing the project perspective really seeing where there is potential in somebody and also where because at the end of the day people are people and we're all different and we've all got different things to give but you know the, the, the main care was that we're not going to be making matches that are going to be detrimental to either of the the two parties and sometimes actually with the training you you have to get to a point where we say well you know maybe you're not ready now or maybe this isn't the right project for you in some cases it turned out not to be the right project for a couple of people they they actually wanted a much more kind of medical and sort of hands-on caring approach which wasn't that wasn't part of it i mean it, it it did happen that a lot of people came on the training because actually they were looking for work in healthcare and it wasn't necessarily that appropriate the way they were seeing it was this is a person who's ill and who's isolated and needs lifting and caring and cooking for and actually it wasn't about that so it's how to kind of break that down for people some people got it you know a lot of the people did get it but some people just didn't and they just weren't right for the project and some people quite you know some people can be quite didactic and some people can be quite religious and how do you and when I say that's not an issue per se, but it's an issue where you're actually so fundamentally, you know, sort of passing on your religion. You sat there with, you know, whether it's the Bible or whatever. That wasn't what it was about. It was about making friends. But that was the tricky part of the um, the training, I suppose, and the selection. And also, actually, to be honest, people can pass through the training, but we wouldn't actually match them until we found the right person to match them to. So, in fact, it has happened where. There was somebody who's quite religious and really wants to read passages from the Bible. And it happens that there was an isolated person who wanted the same thing. So that worked for them. Do you see what I mean? It's actually about the kind of the putting the right sort of energies together. You know, sometimes there might be people who are very, very diverse in their, their sort of experience, their life experience. But actually, they've got something they can really give to each other and enjoy off each other. So really, this kind of matchmaking service for... It's a matchmaking service. In this country now, I'm here for 20, 24 years, but no education. I came in as a refugee, and then my brother brought me, and then he leave me. So it was difficult to go about things. So who helped me is from Anita House. They made me to know here, and I, they told me to come, be coming here. For in summer, this I started coming here, and then I've been here now for quite a long time. They have given me a lot of experience. Just what I need in life, there is no friend, there is nobody to talk to, there is nowhere I can explain myself. But now I have that confidence to talk to people. I have that confidence that I'm, I'm, I'm with a family. I'm not, I have no work yet to do, but I have that courage that. I will one day have a, a job. Omasaya, um, why do you become a compassionate neighbor? Uh, I want to have impact in that community. So I can't just be taking, taking, taking. I want to give away. <laughs> you understand? Yeah, I want to give like out. Giving, uh, more than taking. Uh, so that's are you why. A member of, um, are you a church uh, person? Yes, I go okay, to church. Okay, I go yeah. to church. That's I do right. some charity when I see uh, people begging around. But to my community, I want to give out instead of just 
Chicken, 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 chicken uh, with this new age program. It is very interesting. I get the privilege of uh, socializing with people that come for the training. No question is stupid. Any question you ask them, they're ready to, they don't say it's stupid. No. They, uh, they are, they are, they are and they are very supportive in every area. They give you confidence. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Joseph, yes. that's your brother that came and leave, me here. leave you here. Did you forgive him for what he has done or you are still holding grudge against him? No, I didn't hold him grudge. I know he didn't do it deliberately. Mm -hmm. He was frustrated indeed in this country. Mm -hmm. That's why he ran away from this from me. Mm -hmm. Because they think when we come here, it will be okay, but it is not. I've been now in this country for 24 years. I started going to college in 2010. I studied English for the past seven years. When he asks me questions, I have no answer. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to, how to give you answer. So now I can speak a little bit. I'm happy now. I am in a place, whatever you say, there are answers. There are, there are people who can make you build up confident on doing things and whatever you want to do in future. Mm. Yes. I, I didn't hold grudge on my brother. No, no, brother. No, I didn't hold uh, When you came into this country, you can't... English is not your first no, language. It's, not, uh, it's never part of me. Okay. What was your first language? language my language is Mende, second Creole. Okay. Uh. As a child, I'm a strengthful, strange and strengthful child because I didn't see my mother. We were so strengthful, so strengthful people because they are not our own mothers. My father doesn't care. He only cares for the, his wife. Doesn't give with strength to do things. We are always in different places. We find people who can support us. We find people who can feed us. Sometimes they cannot give us food to eat our, with our aunties in our homes. They cannot give us food to eat if we don't work. So we grow up so strange for me. Very, very tough. For me to come here, it's not easy. In that type of country, Sierra Leone, I'm saying about. Not any other country, but Sierra Leone. How to find it, it's not easy. My childhood is very, very interesting. Uh, we have a large family. My dad was produce buyer. I don't know whether you understand what it is. So he's, uh, I can't say he's very rich. He's very, <laughs> one way or the other, I say very wealthy. So in our family, we have uh, people coming in and out to visit us. Although it's a polygamous house, but uh, you cannot say this one is mother of A, this one is mother of B. 
So we are so united even up to now. You call them my mother, my, my mother. mother. Okay. Although they are not your biological mother. You understand? Yeah. Seven. I, apart from my mom. Where are you coming from? Uh, I come from Nigeria. Nigeria. Yeah. Yeah, only quite different story. You say you have seven mom. Yes. We I just have two two grand I mean aunties. We call them aunties. Okay. Yes. Country. They are not our biological mom. Mm. So did they choose you? Some some of our mothers choose who to do do to, who to make good to, who to give to, who to make very better. That's the way our operate that. Did they, did your, does your mom, I mean your mothers do that? You know how my daddy arranged his family is very strange. Okay. Because all those women, they cook together, they eat together in the same pot with my dad. Okay. But my auntie, that one hasn't got any child. That one is living with us. My dad will give my auntie our own money to look after us. So she's the one that buy our food, even clothes. She's the one. Our mom, you know, African way of life. They don't. Uh, she's the one that is looking after us. My dad, we give her money for our clothing, for our food. For, so was we she, cook. Hold we on, cook. Hold on that. Was she the best of women to your dad? She no, she's my auntie. She's she's a, a sister to oh, my dad. Okay, okay, okay all right. A sister I to my dad, now. and she hasn't got any issue. So she's living with us. She moved from Lagos to where we live. So she's the one that my dad will give money, maybe to make her feel that she's got children. I don't know why he did that. Even if our if our mother want to send us message, they had to take permission from her. If she said no, it's no. And if you say yes, she can go. We can go. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how my daddy... And you have to be careful. Mm. That's the way... So that's the way my daddy arranges uh, yeah. home. <laughs> you were talking about really getting to know people to, to kind of understand who they could be matched with and what they could bring. So conversation, obviously, a big part of that. How did you kind of approach that side of it? Was it like an interview process or more of a over time, like more relaxed conversation? What what was the the way that you found out about people in you know to, well, to know who the, to to match them with? So the isolated person, the person referred who's looking for somebody, I have a very long conversation with them, and it can be quite wide ranging. I mean, there are certain fields that we need to cover, but we don't, it's not like a form filling exercise. It's more about, you know, what kind of things did you like to do? Where did you grow up? And, and sometimes you will find a point where you can just ramble on or whatever, but you fill all as much information as possible. Beyond the training, there's also constant connection. There's constantly keeping in touch with people, either through coffee mornings or through professional development or practice development sessions where the trainees, the people who've, who've done the training, the volunteers are developing a community, a supportive community amongst themselves. And then they're in a kind of a holding stage waiting for the right person. And in the meantime, I and whoever else are going out and meeting isolated people. And sometimes it will literally come like a flash in your brain because you meet someone and you're talking to them and suddenly 
a person you've worked with and got to know really well through the training comes to mind that this would be exactly the right person to get on with you. And you know, sometimes it doesn't work. It has happened that you've matched people and it hasn't worked because the expectations have been different or wrong. And it's also happened that I've met people who, you know, you, this is actually the saddest part of the work, I think, is where you meet somebody who's very isolated and they've been referred, they didn't necessarily refer themselves. They don't necessarily actually want a friend, but somebody else thinks it's good for them to have somebody coming in on a regular basis. And that can be really, really difficult because um, you can't find the person for them. I mean, a volunteer in a project like that is one step away from being an isolated person who is a, what we would call a community member. Do you see what I mean? Basically, yeah, yeah. it's the same people. The difference is yeah. I'm still walking around. I can still get about. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering, because these are quite vulnerable, isolated people who, who are volunteering and they're being matched with people who are less mobile and probably more at the end of life, perhaps um, mm -hmm. with terminal illness. How is it almost seeing, maybe this is a bit blunt, mm -hmm. but where, where you could end up possibly, you know, the next step? Maybe it's cathartic. I don't know. I just wonder. Well, I think actually, I think you're right there. I think it is quite cathartic. I mean, a number of people who volunteer as compassionate neighbours are also at end of life themselves. They've got cancer. They've had a cancer diagnosis. In some cases, they've been through treatment and they know they've got a few more years left. In one case, um, somebody who recently died, actually, she was in treatment and then she went on an experimental treatment. But she was a really vociferous and active, compassionate neighbour. And then she chose to come off the program a few months ago and she died. But with throughout all of that, she's been, you know, volunteering with this project, had a really fundamentally important part in the project. I mean, she's had a very significant role in the, in the project. So there is a fear factor around death and dying and, and, you know, facing your own mortality. I actually think that a lot of people come to a project like that because they want to face their own mortality. I think if it was difficult, they wouldn't be there. It's very, very challenging, but I think the people who come are people who are prepared to be challenged. Mm. I do know that when I first started work there, I'd been matched to somebody who lived very close to me and she actually died. She died the day before I started work. No, the day I started work there, my first day of work, on my way to work, I, I discovered that she had died because I was going to drop in and see her. That was a massive shock for me in a way, because I was suddenly going just about to start this job where the person I'd been visiting was dead. But it was it was quite interesting because I, I walked into the, the hospice and everybody around there is dealing with death. That's what yeah. they do. Yeah. So actually, it was much better than, you know, going home or going to a workshop and going to any other sort of space because the space was ready to talk. I mean, somebody offered me a cup of tea and just to sit down and not talk or whatever. Everybody had the right approach. I think that by the time you've been through that we do we, we do some you know that training also involves a lot of full-on role play which is something people don't like people always think they don't like by the end of the training everybody loves the role play because <laughs> they really get to try things out and they also really get to act but also they're taken onto the wards onto the usually the ward the respite ward where people are coming every six months so they get to know patients as well it's like a hu the human side of end of life as opposed to the medical side of it if that makes any sense. I guess the more you're in it and close to it, death, I mean, the, the less scary it becomes. I mean, I'm sure it's still scary, but at least, you know, it, it becomes more of a reality and, and you can just 
cope with it a bit better. How about you? How did your relationship with death change as you were in mm. in this space? I mean, I didn't actually encounter much death, to be honest. I suppose my relationship with death changed over time in that I got very comfortable talking about it and also acknowledging it as, you know, it, it, it doesn't feel frightening to me anymore, but I actually didn't encounter that much death. What I did encounter a lot of, of was isolation and real kind of impoverishment of just life. That's what I would say was difficult for me. Mm. The way I encountered death there was always very loving and very joyful. You know, the, the people who work in a hospice, it's completely different to working in a hospital, I'm sure. But people who work in a hospice, I mean, every time you ever saw somebody, there was somebody else's hand on them, on their shoulder, or there was so much love and real kind of connection between people. And you could see that, you know, patients were, I mean, even the respite patients, they see it as coming to the club. But, you know, for them, a lot of them, it was like every six months, they would come to this place and sometimes they would be booked in at the same time as their mates or people they'd got to know. So it was, I mean, it literally was a respite. It was like going to Butlins, I think, for, for some people, having a little break. And I, I think in an environment like that, with so much love and basically it's about making people comfortable, isn't it? It's not about not acknowledging their condition. It's totally accepting of their condition and that they are dying. There's a real acceptance of it. I'm born in Hackney and I came here in 2015 because I live alone. What, what was your earliest memory? My earliest of, memory yeah, when of, I was four years old. <laughs> <laughs> During that time, were that were you happy? Because I know you said you haven't got, you know, you're not in contact with any of your family. I was back happy? then, yeah. yeah. I was only a baby then. Yeah, so I, yeah, I, I suppose so. <laughs> Why have you decided to do well, compassionate neighbour? When I first came here, I had, had a club that people live on their own, and I was sent here by my doctor because I was living and I was getting depressed. Yeah. I lost my father in Christmas 72. And I was on my own till I came here. I came here 2015, December. One of the sisters here asked Joy if I could join in the coffee morning. So she said yes, and that's how I got in, came to be in the club. And I've been trained, done all my training. Why did you join? <laughs> what did you get out of it? I really wanted to give something back to yeah. the community. Um, I had cancer myself. I know what it's like. I used, as working in a hospital, I met, come across a lot of lonely people. And I know out there there's a lot of yeah. elderly people who are isolated. They don't see anyone. Maybe the carers may come in, but that's not enough. They still need someone to, yeah. you know, just take them for a walk. For instance, I, without me, my community member wasn't able to go out to the park. I, I accompanied her to the hospital. I just look out for her because she's vulnerable. She has no family. And um, I'm aware that some people can't take advantage as well. And they may find her a bit complaining, but I see a different picture. I understand why she is like that. I just look. Having no one, no one to, if you're feeling down, to call, it, it just make you... <laughs> she may complain about things that may seem to some people 
trivial. Yeah. But to her, it's not. Just having me there to reassure her and say, you know, don't worry about it. Just a listening ear, someone who cares. I think that is the most important thing. And I think I'm doing a good job. And I feel appreciated as well because she tells me, <laughs> she tells me so. And I, I do go out of my way to help her. Do not think different from what you imagine it would be. Being a compassionate neighbor? Yeah. I feel my life has changed. I feel, what's the feeling? I feel, hmm. There's a word I'm looking for. There's satisfaction, there's fulfillment, there's a reason to be alive, you know, and um, something to look forward to during the week. And even my family, we say, and they do tease me. <laughs> Are you going to see? I don't know, I don't want to see her name today. I said, no, no, I'm going to see her another, you know, I'll be seeing her this day. I do get a lot of satisfaction being a compassionate yeah. neighbor. And um, my life feels very fulfilled. How would you like to be remembered, Jean? That I'm kind and generous. I like helping people. And when I'm helping people, I'm buying things for people. I, I like to show my appreciation mm. to people for what they've done mm. for me. So when I've done that, I'm happy with myself. That's good. That's very good. Yeah. I'm very happy. Yeah. I'm very lucky that I'm still alive. I'm, I'm, I don't think I should have been, because when my mother gave birth to me, I was smaller than my siblings. So and from there on, I've, I've suffered with ill health all the way through my life until now. I've got COPD, which my family, what I've got, don't believe I've got. Well, I don't see them regularly. I haven't seen for four years. And that's my sister's children. But they expect me to phone them. I mean, if I'm all right, I don't need to phone them. <laughs> so it, but it wouldn't hurt them to phone, say, once a week to see if I'm all right. But you don't, they don't bother. So I don't bother with them. I had a sister died five years ago, so my regret is not spending, <laughs> not spending enough time with her. I mean, I was working at the time, but I, you know, I wish I spent more time with her. So that's my one of my biggest regrets. Thank you, Janet. Thank you as well, Jean. <laughs> <laughs> For you, it was more about the encounters with people whose life was very restricted I guess and yeah. so what's that like it's really tricky when people have closed their lives mm. so, made their lives so small yeah or have their lives been made small and then they've just got used to it do you know what I mean there's so many different ways of looking at it and when you meet so many people I mean, that, that, that's one aspect of my job that I find, even to this day, quite difficult. I don't even know if any of these people are still alive, but I can walk down a street and know that behind that door, there's a particular person who I wasn't able to match and I passed them on to other services and they weren't able to do anything for them. Do you know what I mean? Things like that can sometimes get to you, um, which I suppose is one of the, the downside of doing this kind of work in your neighborhood, in your community. 
I mean, I've seen it very much as a plus side, being able to do this work in my community. But the downside is that that means you maybe do know more than you want to know, or you've been exposed to, that you can't kind of walk away from, you know, it's, it's not like I'm getting on a train and, and, you know, leaving another town and its issues behind. This is kind of my community. And there's always a little bead at the back of your brain that says, surely something can be done. You know, surely there's something we can do to help. But if people don't want help, if they don't want support, you can't do anything. Yeah. You know, I think part I think part of the hard thing is is accepting that what you might consider to be needs or essentials is not necessarily what another person might. Yeah. I can see that. I mean, you touched on this kind of, you know, how do you just leave it all at work? That's really hard to do when you know you, you know you have you you, you want to match someone or there's somebody who's particularly vulnerable I guess mm. anyone working in kind of healthcare or community work has that where it's like you have to kind of shut it down when you get home but that's really hard to do yeah it can be I mean it's really really great to be able to which you know obviously I don't do anymore because I don't work there anymore but to actually have a conversation with a colleague and they'll say you did everything this is well and, and i actually know that you know you, you can only go through the procedures that you're allowed to go through you know i sometimes think i could just knock on that door and see how that person is but i can't do that anymore do you know what i mean it's sort of it's a weird sort of thing because also with the, with the with these conversations you get to know people quite well when you're in the process of trying to match somebody you sort of come into their lives you're trying to match them yeah. how open are they to, to it, it's entirely just different every you know every experience is completely different mm. for example you know somebody who just she was just very 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 angry it was almost as though she didn't even know why i was there there'd been quite a lot of pressure to get me there to knock on her door and have you know maybe attach her to the compassionate neighbors project i mean at the end of the day the easy thing was she was such a heavy smoker such a heavy smoker that when, even when i'd asked if we could meet in another room because it was less smoky she was really furious about that i thought well i actually can't you know, I just cannot send any of the people I've trained, any of these amazing people into your house because you're not making, you won't make any kind of concessions. And actually it sounds like you don't really want to meet. That was a case of another project saying, oh, please, can't you do something about this person? And, you know, they're probably thinking exactly the same thing I am. That, oh God, I, I really couldn't. I tried, but I couldn't. What can I do now? I mean, there's another interesting thing that happens with this work is that you, you come to realise that because somebody is of a certain age doesn't necessarily mean they're sweet. And I think that, you know, some people have just been difficult all their lives for whatever reasons, just because they're older doesn't necessarily mean they have changed. And so some people actually don't want friends or they're always going to be snickety with people. You know, you can't change people. You know, yeah. there's all kinds of reasons why people are not necessarily, or we're not necessarily going to be able to match them. And it's basically, you know, if, if you don't want it, and if, you, if you're not going to be sort of open to it yourself, it's not going to work. It's not going to be fair for that person. Because at the end of the day, and I think they said that with that particular project, at the end of the day, it's not necessarily about the people who are isolated. It's about the numbers of people who can be trained to become compassionate neighbors because by doing that they're developing a network and that in itself is preventative in terms of isolation later on you know it's that sense of get prepared now so that when you are yeah. that old yeah. you've got all these amazing people around you you know you've already been really open with you already know how to support each other 
And, and that's actually the point of the Compassionate Neighbours project, is to create those kind of local social networks. That sort of thing is really, really wonderful. You know, when you think that so many people, maybe not so much of younger generations, but so many people, their friendship groups were based on work, and particularly men. And once you've retired or you've left that industry or whatever, you don't, don't necessarily have those connections that you had. They, they were some of the hardest people to match were men because they were very isolated and also very few men came on the training because men don't see that as part of their world so they they don't necessarily connect to that i'm, I'm talking about men of certain generations yeah you know, young yeah. men i think are very very different you know to reach an age where you're no longer connected to your work your neighborhood has changed dramatically because it's suddenly become like hipsterville and all the people who you used to know around you have either moved out, they've sold their places or whatever, but everything's changed. That must be so alienating if you, if you don't have connections. And one of the things I, I did notice, and, and I've, I've actually, I'm still on WhatsApp groups. I don't, I don't sort of interact much, but I'm still on Compassionate Neighbour WhatsApp groups. People are just sharing all kinds of interesting information. You know, there's recipes going backwards and forwards. Before lockdown, there was a lot of stuff about, you know, where to see free stuff, whether it's theater or cinema, or I, I've seen very encouraging messages, you know, go backwards and forwards. And I've seen people talk about things that they've learned in the Compassionate Neighbors, and then that they're trying out in their family situation and they're reporting back how that's worked out and they're getting, you know, well done from each other. And that, I think that is basically the point of something like a project like that yeah and I remember um you know I went and did some recordings there and it, it was actually quite intergenerational you know it was mainly older people but there were younger people there too yeah. and it's hackney so it's pretty culturally diverse as well so you're you know you're getting the kind of social experience that you might not get yeah in your church group or in your I don't know, um, luncheon club or things that are geared for older people. Um, not everyone wants to go to those things. I did see that, you know, there was a delight also in the coffee mornings where the volunteers got to hang out with each other. I guess, you know, because they've all been trained together. They, they've, yeah. they've... They're a cohort. They really are bonded. And sometimes they go to other projects or go to other places in London and they're a group. They feel very, very strongly connected. And because it's now been rolled out across London, you know, other, other boroughs have got it, other hospices. You know, it's like being in the Scouts, I suppose. Yeah. The way kids used to feel when they were in the Scouts. They've all gone through some of the training. They all know what they're doing. They all know what the agendas are. It's very nice. And what, what I did like about being in Hackney, to be honest, is that, yes, a lot of younger people did come to do the training when they heard about it because they had moved into Hackney and they wanted to get to know it. And they thought a great way of getting to know it would be to meet somebody who's older, who's been here for a very long time. And I thought that that was kind of really insightful of them. And also brilliant, of course, you know, really, really brilliant. How long do they last, these younger people? Do they, they, do they keep at it? Actually, I think most of the people I, I matched were still matched at the time that I left. I'm trying to think about those that didn't work out. I mean, to be honest, some of the relationships that didn't work out did tend to be more with older people. Mm. I mean, there was there was a couple of really just magical matches in, um, you know, between quite a younger person and an older person, where they really benefited from each other's company, and you could just see the sparkle in their eyes when they met each other. And they, you can see that actually, people do feel very, you know, it becomes just an alternative form of family, mm. in yeah. a way. Yeah, which is the point. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's what we all are, really, at the end of the day. 
And it took me a year to come forward to St. Joseph's. And when I heard about the Compassionate Neighbour Scheme, I recognised that um, as someone who talks to anybody and um, loves going to places, that um, I was ideal material to support someone. And um, I'm really pleased I took it on because now I go to um, an elderly person's residence and we, we have a laugh because I like to have a laugh. I'll be 73 my next birthday. I was born in Ireland and came here as an immigrant. Often people think of immigrants as being brown or black, but I'm one as well. Well, what's your earliest memory? The wind on deck of the boat that we came over. It was called the Princess Maud, and it was used as a cattle truck in the last war and then put on the Irish run. And I certainly remember the wind being so cold and my ears hurting. And so you came straight to London, is that right? Um, we were supposed to go to New Zealand, I understand, but my dad had a little paddy. Uh, he was extremely angry at having to leave Ireland. He, he, he was a playwright and had <laughs> works on at the Abbey. And my mother was represented Ireland internationally as a um, trade unionist. Oh, my goodness. Um, they were literally run out. They were told to leave Ireland. It wasn't safe for them to be there. So we got, supposedly, and my dad just couldn't take any more. He was so... I suppose, full up and couldn't express it. And he went off. And there was my mum left with three children, <laughs> nowhere to go. But uh, being the sort of resolute lady she was, she, um, she went across the road where there was a hotel that was run by a gentleman and his wife. Uh, she was English, I think, but he was, um, where was he from? Hungary, I think, somewhere like that. And I can remember every Sunday him calling her Emma, where's my white shirt? I can't do an <laughs> accent, but that's what it was. My goodness. So now, if your great-great-grandchildren were listening to this years on from now, is there anything that you'd like to pass on to them and anything that you would want them to know? Never turn down anything. Have a go. Uh, you may or may not be suited to it. and Don't give up at the first hurdle, try it out five, six times, uh, see whether or not you could do the same thing in a slightly different way uh, that might be more successful. And if not, say, no, this isn't for me, and move on to something else that is. But use your talents, whatever you've got, big or small, doesn't matter what they are. Yeah, and I suppose there are many ways to find out what your talents would be. Mm -hmm. Have you got any ideas to pass on to us for that, finding um, your talents? Uh, well, I personally, I volunteer for um, many different uh, sides of life, so I meet different kinds of people. Don't always agree with them, mm. but so what? Um, yes. You know, the whole idea <laughs> is that I have to listen to what they're saying because they could look at something and I might not have thought of that. Yes. And it might rearrange my own thoughts and I may um, want to change my opinion or I may, the other way, keep, think, I understand what you're saying and I know that that's how you think, but I still think such and such.
So you're, you're advocating an, a flexible approach, but strong in your own mind. Would you say that? Yes, I don't think any of us know what gifts or talents that we have. Yes. Um, how we could perhaps aid somebody else or aid ourselves. Yeah. Or even um, think of aiding other no, people. It never occurred to you. Mm. Um, I was always growing up obsessively tidy. Everything oh. had to be in its right place. I was practicing for being blind. Well, <laughs> That's the way I look that. at it. <laughs> you can say that. now... It's a very positive way to I've view. I've got to have yes. it, uh, in the right, everything in the right place. Mm -hmm. The other thing was, when we were at home in Ireland, we were uh, rural, and uh, we had dogs, but they did not come into the house. They were um, farm dogs. They lived in yes. the barns. And all I knew about dogs is they bit you and they barked at you. And when I lost my sight, I was told, have a dog, it's a companion. It must have been a bit of a surprise. Well... I um, said, excuse me, but they keep on saying it's a companion. If I want a companion, I'll find myself a man. I know better now. <laughs> I've learned. The best thing I ever did, truly. Yes. I was scared. And the first teacher had to keep saying, you know, loosen up, loosen up. Yes. Um, yes. But it's the best decision I ever made. And for me, a, a dog really helps me i am a speaker for guide dogs so i go around schools oh. and all sorts of places and um i always say to children look at my eyes they're broken oh, they right. don't work anymore yes but i've got two ears and i can really hear well you're very and fortunate they, they, <laughs> i am very fortunate and people say you that's because you've lost your sight i said no what you do, you use it more. Yes. And I can, <laughs> in a class or in a group in a hall, say, you've been talking, can you stop, please? And they cannot believe it because you can hear them. And you look towards the direction. You may not be right exactly, but you are roughly. So human beings are interesting. Very. And I think you've just got to... Find someone to talk to and, and keep a focus, whatever it is. Yes, I think listening as well. Oh, well, listening is a hugely important skill. Active listening and uh, it, 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 it's... Uh, there's always some part of me that can do a bit better. That's how I feel. Yeah, I think that's true. So why did you leave in the end? I think I got to the point of being overwhelmed. My mum died in the January. She became ill in Kenya and I flew out to Kenya. So I was there for two months with my family and it was all very, very, very intense. I mean, my mum died actually before I, the plane had landed. You know, if you talk about the impact that death has, particularly the death of a matriarch in a family of mostly females. I've got a very large family. There are nine of us and it was very intense it was just like bombs going off all over the place so when I came back I'd suddenly had like out of the blue this kind of experience of grief or death or bereavement or whatever which I'd almost been working in theoretically up until that point yeah it was it was interesting it was I mean interesting in terms of how I brought that to my work 
but ultimately I think I needed maybe basically what happened was I started to feel really overwhelmed by my work and then my son decided to move to Australia in about a year and a half and I just thought well I, I just can't be doing this until he leaves I need to be with him as I was going through all of that process it turned out that somebody in his workshop was taking a year out to go to college so I said well could I work there and he said yep so he became my boss and you know for me it was really big you know my mum died at the beginning of the year and then in October I left St Joseph's I think you can only last so long or maybe maybe not I think it depends on your personality maybe and maybe it was very much about what was going on in my family and in my life I think maybe it just became it's weird to say it to say that it became real it's, I think it was about bandwidth maybe it's like you've got so much compassion and when I was doing it just as the work my compassion was very much directed outwards and then I think I got really kind of sapped of energy. I think I got to a point of feeling I can't make enough of a difference. It's not making me happy anymore. And feeling the loss of family through my my mum dying and then my son, my only son deciding to go and live somewhere else. So And he's still there, he's still in Australia. He's still there, yeah. He left at the end of January, you know, just before I think by the time he landed in Australia, everybody was wearing masks there. So talking of lockdown and COVID how have these neighbours, have they been continuing to connect as far as you know, virtually? Yeah, from my understanding, they've been, so they're doing their coffee mornings virtually. I know that the Compassionate Neighbour Community member relationships are continuing by phone. And the team, the Compassionate Neighbours team are keeping up to date with everybody, on regular emails, regular text messages. From where I'm watching and not responding, there's lots of activity. So what's next? Around death and dying. <laughs> uh, I hope not. I don't know if you want to talk about what's next around death and dying. <laughs> uh, what's next? <laughs> I mean, what was going to be next for me was to move to Portugal. You know, I think I've got to that point in my life where I need to be a grandma and my son's decided to go off to Australia. I've been trying to persuade him to come to Portugal. And then because of lockdown and everything our plans have had to change dramatically so i was going to be by now living in portugal that was going to be my plan but i'm not I'm here you've been listening to transmitter a social broadcast production hosted and put together by me lucia scazzocchio all the details of what you've heard will be available on the transmitter tab of socialbroadcasts.co UK, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. I'll be back with more sounds, radio and podcast discoveries in the autumn. And if you have any recommendations, please do drop me a line via the website. Until then, happy listening. <laughs>